like down there, uh, oddly enough. And um, I was just noting, you know, two of our little boys and their dads. Uh, I'm expecting that they went to the bathroom or something like that. And I was just encouraged. And uh, noting that these little boys are developing the habits of a Christian. They don't know Christ yet, not professed Christ yet, but they're getting an example of their fathers who bring them to church, who set the example for them, and I was just encouraged by that. I wanted you to maybe make a quick note of that and um, maybe a, a word of encouragement to them when, when you see them later or something. We're in chapter 14 of Acts this morning. As we begin today, I'll give you a song lyric. One writer said, the fish who keeps on swimming is the first to chill upstream. Now, we as Christians, we kind of develop this mentality that God's will is the path of least resistance. You've heard me say this before. I learned this from a dear brother years ago. But uh, we got to recognize from the words of Jesus, and as we're seeing this pattern throughout Acts, we're, we're, we must recognize the resistance that's always against the flow of the kingdom of Christ. And if you're not aware of this in your day-to-day life and you start to think, well, following God ought to be easy and mission ought to be easy and um, you're, going to, you're going to be very ineffective on mission if you, if you live thinking that this ought to be easy. The pattern shows us throughout the word that we are to be busy with the things of God and those things of God are often running contrary to the world. The world is against the things of God. I remember recently, Andrew and I were texting about getting together. We get together a couple times a week and uh, doing things related to church and just development in terms of um, following Jesus and, and as men. And, and just recently, I said, hey, look, I'm going to need to cancel this afternoon. And he said, is there anything I can pray for you about? And, and what I texted may have sounded like, sounded like there was bad things going on. But I just responded and said, man, I'm just busy with all the right things. And maybe you can get that uh, in your life a little bit. Like, I want to be busy with the things that God has me busy with. I want to be doing the things. I want to be found doing the things that God has put before me. Things that are ultimately for his purposes, ultimately for the progress of the gospel, but those things are going to meet much resistance in the world. Now, brief review, we're on the first missionary journey with Paul, Paul and Barnabas, in fact. That's really as much as a background I'm going to give you this this morning. Why don't we pray now? I'm going to read as we go through the text. We're going through the entirety of Acts chapter 14. I'm going to read each section as I give you sort of the next point. So let's pray now. Father, 
Help us discern your word. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to embrace the command that he has given us ultimately to make disciples of the nations. We pray that this little um, this journey with Paul, these few chapters, would shape our lives. The Holy Spirit would use these texts to reorient what we do for your purposes and ultimately we know in ways that are contrary to what the world wants. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title I'll give you today is Episodes of Expected Resistance. Episodes of Expected Resistance. The theme this morning, Faithful Gospel Witness Sets Out Against the World's Current. We've said that already numerous times. Faithful Gospel Witness Sets Out Against the World's Current. Now, I want to give you these three episodes, and then we'll conclude with that last little section in chapter 14. So the first episode we see here is from verses 1 through 7, and it's an episode of poisoned faith. It's an episode of poisoned faith. Read with me, chapter 14, 1 through 7. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, those, or excuse me, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Poisoned faith. All right, so the journey here has led Paul and Barnabas from Pisidian Antioch to Iconium. And I'm going to try to turn it around in my mind so you can see kind of, uh, if you look in your Bible, you may have some maps that will, that will help you. But they have set off to Cyprus. They have made, which is, a, which is an island, they have made their way to what is modern-day Turkey. And now they're working back this way. And eventually, as we read today, they're going to make their way all the way back around for good reason. So the, the city of Iconium, the, the town, I suppose, was a, a very mixed with different types of people. And outside of this little place, it was fairly desolate out there. It was a, a, a town that was en route between Ephesus and Syria. So um, the, the, the way people traveled, they would have come near Iconium on their way from Ephesus to Syria or uh, the way back. These missionaries stick with their M.O. that is going directly to the synagogue. You're seeing the pattern if you're here every week. You're seeing the pattern to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And they immediately, as the text says, they enjoy a positive response seeing a number of conversions, some Jews and some Gentiles. Yet we do see the unbelieving Jews represent another wave of resistance to the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. And so if you think of the book of Acts, and if you think of the modern church, and really the church between those times, you see just waves and waves of the enemy's attack against what God is doing. We talked about it in Sunday school a little bit this morning about how the the system of the world is set against the system that God ordained when he created all things. Ultimately, how things will all be back to what he created it to be. But as those waves come, I want you to start thinking of it like this, like like when you're, when you're young and you get out in the, the, the beach waves, it's like you're a little concerned about this. And I think generally Christians are concerned about the waves culturally, societally that come against the church. But I would tell you, hey, you got to learn how to have fun in the waves. You got to learn how to do mission in the waves. You got to learn how to make disciples in the waves. So that you're not beat down by the waves, but you know that, hey, the waves are coming and we will not be stopped. Luke records here that they stirred up the Gentiles and it says, many versions use this word, poisoned their minds against the brothers. Stirring up is the idea of provoking a response. You get that. While poisoning their minds indicates an attempt to embitter the listeners, really only spreading the resistance to the gospel around like a stomach bug. Many of you have seen or experienced that as of late, it seems. Might have some today who are not here because we're kind of light because of stomach bug or whatever may be going around. But that's kind of what was going on. They're, they're passing this around. They're, they're, they're putting the seeds of doubt, really the seeds of resistance and, and bitterness against the apostles here. And it seems like much modern resistance to the gospel comes from the poisoning of the mind. Comes from the poisoning of the mind. I'll give you an illustration that you will all understand and you will have an emotional response to it. I know you remember when masks were such a big deal. In social settings and even in the life of the church. But consider back when, which is still sort of, you know, makes you uncomfortable. Realize that the enemy, the enemy cared nothing for poisoning your body. His ultimate goal was not out to kill as many people as possible. He certainly kills, don't get me wrong. But you know what he wanted to poison? Our fellowship, our unity. He wanted to poison the mission, and masks were just a cover. Pun intended. But how did we respond? Speaking of poisoning of the mind, how did we respond to those situations? We appealed to the mind. We say, hey, I got this study. I got this research. One way or the other, you had an opinion and you had your supposed evidence. And you appealed to the mind. And while the enemy was poisoning fellowship, Poisoning our minds, we set against one another. 
all throughout churches, all throughout the land. And we allowed certain claims with supposed evidence to cloud our judgment, to corrupt our love, to strain our relationships. And this is exactly what the unbelieving Jews were doing in Iconium. But in this case, it was the state of souls, the everlasting state of souls at stake. The missionary answer to this, as they stirred up the Gentiles, as they poisoned the minds of the listeners, the missionary answer began with making a stand. It says that, that they stayed a, a long time. They stayed. They spoke boldly. They bore witness. So they took the stand. This is what Peter teaches as he writes, we ought to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do this with gentleness and respect. The, res- the resistance for Paul and Barnabas, it inspired them. They learned how to play in those waves. It inspired them, as Paul Hill adds, to make them more bold in their witness. So it tells us right there, one, they spoke boldly against the resistance. They were emboldened. And then secondly, they bore witness faithfully. And see how the Holy Spirit then opens the door. All the supposed evidence, the unbelieving Jews poisoning the minds. Who knows what kind of arguments they brought up about the Old Testament. They are trying to cast doubt. They are trying to poison minds and see what the Holy Spirit does in opening the door for real evidence, evidence that does not need an interpretation, evidence that does not come with a bias. The Spirit granted signs and wonders. You know, you can argue about how some Old Testament passage was interpreted or whatever, and undoubtedly that's what they did as they spoke, as they exchanged in the presence of one another in Iconium. But then the Spirit says, hey, I'm going to do things that you just can't explain. I'm going to provide confirmation that is simply astonishing. So it says... They were granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Even with this, the people of the city were divided. I want you all to hear that. God can do miraculous things and people will still be divided about who he is and what he is and whether he's worthy of our lives. It's interesting to me that many unbelievers claim that they'll follow Jesus so long as he does the one thing that they think is miraculous enough. You know, if he just did this, if he just showed up, you know. But we know from the word that they are lying. Jesus himself said, listen, Luke 16, 31, Jesus himself said, if someone were to rise from the dead and preach to you, 
you still would not believe God. And so, you know what solution he proposed? He said, tell them to read their Bible. Read the Bible. It's not a resurrection and some miraculous confirmation, but it is the word of God that actually brings people to the recognition that they are sinful in the sight of a holy God and they are in desperate need of the salvation that he brings. That's Jesus' words. Tell them to read their Bible. That's my paraphrase, I suppose. Tell them to read the law and the prophets is what he says. Tell them to read Moses and the prophets. Even with miraculous signs, the listeners are still divided, even more polarized. And the tension here gives way to persecution. But persecution only did what it always does. Hear that again. Persecution only did what it always does, and that propels the mission forward. So they continue to preach the gospel. All right, it's getting too tense here. We obviously need to move on. So here we go. Lystra, Derby, the cities of Lyconia, that's next. So there is the episode of poisoned faith. Secondly, there's the episode of perverted worship. Perverted worship. And I don't intend this to have any sort of sexual connotation, even though there may have been. Um, Simply making the worship of God, or what worship should be given to God, towards something else, or corrupting that worship. So corrupt could be another word we put here, but I like to be, uh, I like to alliterate. So here we go, perverted worship. Keep going with me in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us. In the likeness of men, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas, Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave them without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So you see this episode of perverted worship. Paul and Barnabas arrive at Lystra. They happened in the way that the Holy Spirit causes us to sort of happen upon things. They happened upon this crippled man, lame from birth, who had never walked. 
Now, we know these brothers are in tune with the Holy Spirit, not just getting opportunities, but seeing these opportunities quickly and clearly. And, and the idea is that Paul is mid-speech when he locks his eyes on this crippled man, and it says, saw that he had faith to be healed. Now, let's stop right here. There are a couple of good applications that I think we see here. First, and this is a constant reminder for us throughout Acts, look for opportunities to minister. Look for opportunities to minister. But I'll add a little bit here, a little nuance, I guess you could say. I'll put it in these terms. A lot of people, a lot of Christians have the idea that our uh, gospel witness is just like cold calling people. Like we're the equivalent of those people who get you on the phone to say, hey, we've been trying to reach you about your car's extended warranty. That's not what we do. I'm not saying that you can't do that. By all means, you can just drum up a gospel presentation right there, start sharing the gospel totally Fine, and occasions, there's occasions where Paul just does that. But we don't have to cold call people with the gospel. Often there's a way to make the kingdom visible. You know from the word, there's the cup of cold water in Jesus' name. There's a good Samaritan act of neighborly love. And we could list off endless other acts that bring a refreshing taste of Christ's kingdom. So I want to I I see the difference here between gospel and gospel implications. When you give a cup of cold water, I want to be clear, folks, that is not the gospel. When you meet a need, that is not the gospel. That is an implication of the gospel, or to say it another way, that's a sign of the kingdom. And what you're doing is, is sort of wetting the appetite You're sort of showing people what the kingdom of Christ is like. So then you can proclaim the kingdom, which is the gospel, the good news. That we are sinners. Jesus lived sinlessly. Then he died the death for sinners and rose again, accomplishing all of our salvation. We must get that gospel to them. But see how Paul and Barnabas, they saw this man and in the middle of their preaching, probably gospel preaching, or they were going to get there. And then they see this man, and they get to show what the kingdom is like, much like they had just done in the previous pas- uh, passage with signs and wonders. So we don't want to get the gospel confused with the gospel's implications. And that is, you may have an opportunity to minister minister to somebody in some tangible or physical way, and then what that does is it opens the doors to talk about Jesus, to talk about his saving work. So first, we got to look for opportunities to minister. Secondly, trust the Spirit to help you see what is otherwise invisible. Trust the Spirit to help you see what is otherwise invisible. Invisible. I am struck by this passage because it says that Paul saw his faith. I don't know about you, but I I don't look at somebody and say, oh, I see your faith. I don't know what's going on in in their hearts and their minds. I suppose it may be like 
if you think back to the, the stretcher bearers and the ministry of Jesus, you know, they tore the hole in the roof, they lowered down the paralytic to encounter Jesus. And Mark actually comments when Jesus saw their faith. Now, in that, in that instance, we see the evidence of their faith. It's clear. They were willing to tear a hole in the roof and lower this, this man down. On this occasion, we don't quite get those details. So we must conclude, maybe, it's either the clarity that's been given by the Holy Spirit or maybe it's an expression. Maybe it's unusual attention or focus on what Paul is saying that leads him to see, man, this guy is hungry. I'm going to zone in on him. I'm going to lock eyes. And the words here Luke uses are very clear. He was intent with this man. Paul here, he jumps right to the healing. And this may remind you of of the episode that we saw at the beautiful gate back in chapter 3. Very similar instance. While we readers know that healing power comes only through Jesus, we must assume that some around him had yet to grasp that important bit of truth. In ignorance, they begin these acts of perverted worship. MacArthur reveals how this this episode, their response in this episode was rooted in local folklore. Here's what he says. He says, according to this folklore, Zeus and Hermes once came to earth incognito. When they arrived at Lystra and asked for food and lodging, everyone refused them. Finally, an old peasant and his wife took them in. Their inhospitable neighbors were then drowned in a flood by vengeful gods. Now the the peasant couple, however, saw their humble cottage turned into a magnificent temple where they served as priest and priestess. So if you understand that this is... This is Lystra's background. This is sort of their history, an important part of their history. And if they're embracing that uh, false religion, then when this opportunity comes, and these guys seem like they're supernatural, you could understand why they have the response that they do. So they begin calling Paul and Barnabas, Hermes, Zeus. Not only that, the local priest of Zeus tries to offer sacrifices to them as God. But the people of Lystra reveal humanity's desperation to worship something. Call it what you will, but modern gender ideology, Wicca, Buddhism, and any other false religion only corroborates this desperation. They're grasping for things. Here's our opportunity. Here's our opportunity to fulfill the religious responsibility we have and hopefully get right with what was in their case, the gods, the little g gods. All of these other religions do the same thing. It shows us our desperation, but it leads to perverted worship in which worship is directed at something other than the one true God as he has revealed himself in the written word and the living word, namely Jesus Christ. You know, as image bearers of God, he has, according to Ecclesiastes 3, set eternity in our hearts 
And Augustine says, he identifies this, this uh, yearning. He says, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, God. But it's not just them out there. How quickly do we turn from one perverted Savior to the next? We build one perverted altar after another, engage in one perverted worship service, and then attend another. And I would suggest to you, I'll talk about it maybe a a bit more in a second, but I would suggest to you that our modern celebrity Christianity smells a lot like this. Perverted worship. And each time a supposedly godly leader falls, the perverted worship is exposed. Beginning in verse 14, the missionaries answer So you see an answer in every episode. They answer in two parts. Their first response is, we are nothing. First answer, we are nothing. They tore their garments, they rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. Torn garments are a sign of mourning or even outrage. So they exhibit this outrage and then they humbly Correct their listeners. Unfortunately, we don't have enough Christian leaders, maybe even supposed Christian leaders, with this kind of humility. Rather, they excuse the godlike status that they hold in the eyes of their followers, as merely innocent admiration. We could compare this to the pagan Herod Antipas in chapter 12, whom the Lord struck down, as the text says, because he did not give God the glory. This is what God did. He said, I'm going to kill you because you're a glory thief. And I wonder sometimes, this is not a... A plus B equals C, this is not a formula that I'm giving you. But I wonder sometimes if the fall of major leaders in Christendom happens because God is trying to say, look, I will not give my glory to another. That's what happened. We know from the word with Herod. So they say, look, we are nothing Don't even come close to thinking of us more than mere human beings. But secondly, God is God alone. And so they say, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Note here, the legitimacy of worship has everything to do with the God of worship. So Paul explains the only God worthy of all our worship. He is, as he goes through his explanation here, he is the creator. He says, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. All creation was made to exalt God, including you. He is the creator. He is merciful. In past generations, he allowed all the nations 
to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave them without a witness. So in Paul's estimation, the ignorance of former generations came in part from their lack of special revelation from God. You could say it this way, their rebellion was to be expected, yet they still had some witness in creation. And you start to go, hopefully mentally, to Romans 1. Everything testifies that there is a God. His invisible attributes can be seen, namely his divine power. So he's the creator. He is merciful. And third, we could say he sustained you for this. He sustained you for this. He continues, he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good food and gladness. The God that did all of this is now known to be Jesus Christ. But it seems from the text, commentators agree, it seems that Paul is cut off now. It's like his, his sermon here comes short. It, it's cut short. The special revelation lacking in past generations is now among them that they may know the one true and living God through his son, Jesus Christ. But while we're not given the complete sermon, commentators note Paul's sermon at Areopagus, which we're going to study in a few weeks, it gives us an example of how he might proceed to lead them to repentance and faith. Do you remember what happened there? It was just pure pagans listening to him. They had their statue to the unknown God. It was like, hey, we got all these other gods. Let's put one here for the one that we don't know, just in case if there's one out there we haven't found yet. But he, he proceeds to lead them to repentance, probably in the way he would have here. The pursuit of perverted worship, however, drew this episode to a rapid conclusion. And as Luke records here for us, the people could scarcely be restrained. They would not be diverted from their perverted worship. Thirdly, third episode, prohibited progress. Prohibited, we may say, gospel progress or kingdom progress. Verses 19 through 23, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them, in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Prohibited progress. That's the third episode. The presence of disciples in Lystra that we get from verse 20 indicates that the missionary duo stayed there for quite a while. It just said it earlier. But they stayed there for, for some time, some length of time. The desire to exalt Paul and Barnabas has now subsided, but resistance to the gospel did not. And you understand why. Undoubtedly, 
Those who mistook Paul and Barnabas for gods were embittered against them when they came to find out they're exactly who they said they were, mere mortals, mere servants, mere instruments in the hands of God. Somebody told me recently, a bit of wisdom, I've heard this before, but when somebody tells you who they are, believe them. That's what Paul and Barnabas were trying to do. Hey, we're not what you think we are. But you see what happened? The forces of resistance rallied together. The poison crowds traveled from Antioch. Get this, the poison mines, they came from Antioch and Pisidia, 110 miles away. Others came from Iconium, nine miles away, to persuade the perverted worshipers of Lystra to take action against Paul. And they stoned him. Talk about resistance. Hey, if you get stoned this week for preaching the gospel, are you going to be here next Sunday? You better be. Hey, if you say, I need need somebody to come push my wheelchair, whatever it is, roll my IV, whatever you're attached to, we're bringing it all the next Sunday. You're going to be here. And we're going to keep doing what we do. They stoned him. I hope you remember what happened to Stephen. There's some patterns there between Paul and Stephen. They stoned him like what happened to Stephen, and then they dragged his supposedly lifeless body outside the city like discarded trash. Resistance to the gospel will not stop until the gospel and its adherents are silenced. The world, in the end, will never play well with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must not seek to make compromises like the bad kings did in the Old Testament. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. That's the Bible, folks. If you'll allow me, just recently we had a smoke detector in my home that was malfunctioning. And I've, I've, to this day, never figured out exactly how these things work. But, you know, you pull them off the wall, you disconnect them, whatever. You put a new battery in it, because that's what I thought the issue was. You put it back in, and you hope this time you did it right, and it quits beeping. You know the chirp that happens every, what, 90 seconds, two minutes, whatever, that will literally drive you insane? So we had one of those malfunction. And my response is frustration. So I just yanked that thing off its cord in anger (laughs) because I will not listen to that beep anymore. (laughs) But now, now hear this. The sweet symphony of gospel truth that orchestrates our lives and true worship has the same piercingly offensive effect on those that are perishing. Sooner or later, for those that hear the gospel, 
the response is either going to be surrender and faith or it's going to be, I cannot take this anymore. But the missionary answer was resolve. And in one of the most convicting and encouraging instances, I would say, in the history of Christian mission, wouldn't you know it, Paul, now surrounded by these new Lystran disciples, probably checking his pulse and his breathing, hey, do we need to do mouth-to-mouth on Paul right here? The text actually says, Luke uses these words, they're around him, and Paul just kind of gets up. They think he's dead or near it, and he just gets up. This is the same day, mind you. He's thrown out like trash. They're surrounding him. He pops up. Where does he go? Right back into the city. That's why I'm saying to you, look, we're not going anywhere. You get stoned. We're worshiping together next week. We're going to continue to make disciples, continue to preach the gospel. Paul is giving us that example. He won't be stopped. The church will not be snuffed out. And then mission, the next day, seems like they came to the conclusion and we probably don't need to stay here much longer. The next day, they move on to Derby. The remaining work on the mission frontier is then summarized really in the next few verses. Three points of progress for you. Conversions. There were new followers in Derby. it says, after you made many disciples. Then there was discipleship. He went about on his trek back to Antioch and Syria, strengthening, encouraging, equipping, or preparing in Lystra, in Iconium, in Antioch. So there's conversions, there's discipleship, and then there's church planting. They go on to a point Elders, pastor elders, plural, mind you, in every church, singular, who are called, qualified, consecrated to the task through prayer and fasting. That's our work right there, folks. That's the summary. See people converted. Disciple them. Let's start new churches. It's exactly what Paul did. He makes his journey all the way around and all the way back. He is making sure that those churches are not without what they need. And so we conclude with these few verses. Verses 24 through 28. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga... They went down to Italia, the port city, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Keep that in mind for chapter 15. They remained no little time with the disciples. So the missionary duo makes their way back. The method of following up seems to be an effort to put into order the basic things essential to be a church. That's very important. I'm not going to belabor that point. We'll have time in the future. 
Paul undoubtedly here was practicing what he would end up saying to Titus much later. He says to Titus that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So they finally make it back to their home church, their send-in church, Antioch in Syria. This is, as it says, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Don't miss here how the grace of God does not fail. He bestowed upon them grace for the task and then graciously brought the task to completion. And now we have churches in multiple cities because Paul was faithful, because the church was faithful to send them. They gathered, reported, and they sought to enjoy a season of mutual encouragement. So this morning, I suppose, uh, as we conclude, there may be... uh, a measure to which you're still not willing to accept the fact that there's constant resistance against you, the mission, your responsibility in the world, our responsibility as a church. Just come to grips with that. Reckon, reckon with that, the help of the Holy Spirit today. You want prayer, you want encouragement, you're surrounded by people who want to do that for you. Secondly, as I just said, God in this context, he completed the work that he started in them. Now, we could go to Philippians 1, 6 and say, that's a promise from the Lord. And in that context, he is speaking to the work that he began in the Philippians in their conversion, that he was growing them up into what he intended them to be. So I would put this to you, maybe if you're an unbeliever. God promises that if you surrender your life to him, he is going to complete the work. He's not going to leave you hanging. Not going to abandon you. He's not going to give up on you. We certainly are not. He will complete the work that he starts in you. Let's pray. We'll respond. We'll sing. Father, your word is good. On his honey, on our lips, there's music, beautiful music to our ears. We pray that you would Use these words from your word. Write them upon our hearts. That we would be a people set aside holy. People who might not sin against you. People that will be willing instruments in your hands like Paul and Barnabas to make the gospel known. We pray, Father, that as we have an opportunity to sort of show forth the kingdom, sign the kingdom, we would also have many opportunities, clear, visible opportunities to preach the gospel. Come what may, Father, lead us to make disciples in this world. We love you. We're thankful for Jesus, his death and resurrection. And we pray these things in his name, amen.